please turn to the book of Exodus. I'll be reading chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, and on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Father, let us hear with the ears of our hearts as your Son Jesus spoke. May we hear your word to us through Moses today. Amen. God made a covenant with Abraham, promised Abraham, your descendants, I'm going to give to you this land in which I have brought you. Abraham owned nothing in it except finally one little burial plot. And he covenanted with him, your descendants, I will bring to this land. He renewed that covenant with his son, Isaac, and then he renewed it again with Isaac's son, Jacob. And little did Jacob know, though, that he would end up in Egypt and his children and descendants would end up in Egypt for 400 years of bondage and slavery until the day when God would renew the covenant afresh through Moses. God's ways so often do not match up with our ways. God always intended to keep His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And He always purposed and planned from the foundation of the world to bring those people into the promised land through the miseries of Egypt. 
And that same divine principle is true for us today. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Christian, you are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And so after a long, long dark night of Israel's soul, God called Moses. And with a mighty outstretched arm, as we saw last week, He brought them from slavery to independence and freedom under Himself, Yahweh. They walked through the Red Sea on dry land. The Egyptian army was drowned behind them. Now they're free. Now they stand with the sea behind them and a wilderness in front of them. Hundreds of thousands, if not into the millions. And God sustained them, giving them food from the sky and water from a rock. And they marched into the wilderness for a week, three weeks, eight weeks, twelve weeks, three months, they arrived at the base of Mount Sinai. And it is there on Mount Sinai that God renewed the covenant that He had made with their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you look in the text now, if you're opened up to the book of Exodus, chapter 19 through chapter 34 is all concerned now with that covenant made with Israel through Moses. We saw the covenant of Abraham. Let me say it this way. Remember the timeline. Picture that timeline. Bible is linear, not circular. It's linear. One thing happens after another. And he made a covenant with Abraham. We refer to that. And I think these are, if I were to say, what are the top five events in human history, Joe? Well, at least these are going to come in there. And they're clearly top pinnacle events of biblical history. The Abrahamic covenant. And we'll see today, the Mosaic covenant from Moses. Then the Davidic covenant we made with David, and then the centerpiece of all history, the new covenant in Christ Jesus' blood. So this morning, we're concerned with this covenant that we call the Mosaic covenant that God made on Mount Sinai. And I want to approach it with three large questions, three sections. First is this let's just look and see from chapter 19 to 34 where this happens. The history. What unfolded and how God made this covenant. Secondly, we'll ask, okay, what is it? What are the promises that God makes in this covenant, which is part of a covenant, and the stipulations or the conditions that Israel must keep, which is also part of covenants. And then finally, I'm going to preach Christ from the Mosaic Covenant to show how Christ permeates it. So first... What happened? Chapter 19, in verse 3, Moses now goes up to Mount Sinai for the first time. 
And it is there that God now gives him the general parameters of that covenant. Saying, in verses 5-6, to six, If you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is Mine, and you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There it is. Moses goes down. He delivers the word to Israel, their elders. And Israel, in verse 8, say, okay, we accept it, saying all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses goes back up to Mount Sinai. He says, they've accepted it, Lord. Now the Lord, God, says to Moses in verse 9 of chapter 19, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you, Moses, forever. Then God instructs Moses to go back down and tell the people to consecrate themselves. Get ready. For in three days, I want them to come to the base of the mountain. On the third day, they do so. They're there. And then God fills Mount Sinai with fire and smoke. Calls Moses back up again and says, Moses, go down there and warn them not to break through up the mountain, lest they be killed. Then, not Moses, but in front of all these people of Israel, God speaks. And He gives them the Ten Commandments. You shall not have any other gods before Me. You shall not say of Me, Yahweh, let's make an image a graven statue to worship Me. You shall not carry My name, Yahweh, in vain. You shall keep holy the Sabbath day. You shall honor your mother and your father. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. Those ten words, those ten commandments have changed human history. But it wasn't the content of the words that so stunned Israel that day. They freaked out. And they said and they pleaded with Moses. Where am I? Verse 19. You speak to us, Moses, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us again, please, lest we die. So Moses goes back up to the mountain and he receives the rest of the ordinances from God. Look at chapter 21, 
22-23. Just get a view of that. That's what's going on there. 21-22-23 is Moses back up on the mountain. God's giving him all the other specifics beyond the Ten Commandments of his rules, of his laws, of his ordinances. Then in chapter 24, verse 3, Moses comes back down the mountain. He reports to the people all the ordinances and again, they accept it. 24, verse 3, they say, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Then Moses takes those words that he got, writes them in a book, he builds an altar, sacrifices an oxen, takes the blood, consecrates the altar, sprinkles it on the people. And then in verse 9, of chapter 24, we read, Then Moses and Aaron, his brother, his sidekick, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. In verse 12, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there in order that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. And so Moses goes up to the mountain alone with God for 40 days. Then, as you're glancing in Exodus, the next seven chapters, verse chapter 25 through 31, Give the message that God spoke to Moses up there for 40 days. And most of it is essentially the architectural plan and how to build the tabernacle. And which would consist also of the Holy of Holies, where God would meet with the people, and also how the priesthood is to operate in this tabernacle. When God is done with Moses... He gives him two stone tablets with the words on them. And he's to come down the mountain to the people. But during that time, the whole camp of Israel already drastically broke the covenant by making for themselves a graven image in the, in the bull and worship and said, this is our God that brought us out of the land of Egypt. And God lets Moses know of it beforehand in chapter 32, verse 8. God says to him, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And God's ready to wipe them all out. And Moses prays, intercedes. Your name's at stake, God. Please withhold destruction. Moses goes down into the camp takes the two tablets and smashes them in front of the people to signify you have broken the covenant. Then, in God's sovereign purposes and justice, 
the Levites, the one tribe who would be of the priesthood to care of the tabernacle, went through the camp and slaughtered 3,000 men. And then God sent a plague. But He did spare the nation as a whole and showed mercy. At this point, just insert this. What becomes of this covenant then that He made with Moses? They have already transgressed it, broken it, before it was even completed. I submit that if the Mosaic covenant were based on works, on just pure, do it perfectly, do it right, without one transgression, perfect justice, that's it, and that's what it was founded on, then Israel's through. It's over with already, forever. But to show that the covenant of Moses and the law of that covenant was not based on merit, on earning something, on works, but to show that it was foundationally based on grace. God renews the covenant and He uses words that make that foundation of grace crystal clear. Turn to chapter 34. There God tells Moses again, now come back up to the mountain. First, get for yourself two stone tablets and bring them with you. Then in verse 6 and 7, God reveals Himself and the basis of this renewed covenant. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. Now Moses, in verse 9, pleads with God, quote, pardon our, that is Israel, our iniquity and sin and take us for your inheritance. And the Lord responds in verse 10, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And then in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 34, the Lord concludes this last meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai this way. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He ate no bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Then Moses came down the mountain. This is the time where his face shone like the noonday sun. He had to put a veil over it because the people just were blinded by it. 
because of Moses being in the presence of God. Then the rest of Exodus just goes ahead and shows their building of the tabernacle. That's the historical setting and how God made this covenant. Now, the second big question this morning. What is it? What is this thing we call the Mosaic Covenant? What promises, in other words, did God make, which is always part of a covenant, a contract, a pact between two parties? What is God promising and what are the conditions that they must uphold to be part of that covenant? What does God commit Himself to in the Mosaic Covenant? And what does He require of His people Israel in order for Him to fulfill that commitment? First, I think we can boil it down to the five pinnacle, massive, glorious promises that God makes in the Mosaic Covenant. First, is that Israel will be a prized or treasured, special, unique possession for God. Chapter 19, verse 5. If you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is Mine. And I think He adds that last line, for all the earth, the Greeks and the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, the tribal peoples, they're all Mine. That's because of God's the Creator. He does possess and own everything. He's saying, I don't mean you're going to be owned by Me in that way. You already are and everyone is. I mean, I am going to have a unique covenant, special relationship with you to bless you beyond all the other peoples. That's what He means. What a promise. Secondly, of this Mosaic Covenant, is that God promises to make them, Israel, all of them, priests. I will make you, verse 6, see, a kingdom of priests. Priest means you're going to be the people, every one of you, who could come into My holy presence. That's what priests do. They come into the presence of God on behalf of others. I, God, He's saying, will be your inheritance, not land. Remember later, the Levites, no land on your inheritance. Me, God. God promised this not just to the Levites, He promised it to the whole nation of Israel. All twelve tribes. Thirdly, He promises there in verse 6, and I'll make you a holy nation. He means holy there, at least in two senses. Holy is the word we get sanctify or to separate unto. He means it in the way that I am going to make you, Israel, unique. I'm going to cause you 
to be separate from and stand out in the world as a distinct people group who are mine. And he succeeded even to this day. It's why we will see later, not today, another day, another day, that the books of Moses are filled with all kinds of laws that only apply to the Jews to make them stick out, to cause them culturally to be that people. And it's still true to today. But the other way he means holy for them to be holy is what he said in Leviticus. He means morally. He means you're going to have the blessing of me causing you to be changed more and more into my likeness. Be ye holy, I mean righteous, holy, for I, God, Yahweh, am holy. These are those first three wonderful promises if they keep the covenant. This fourth great promise in chapter 23, verse 22. God promises to be an enemy to their enemies. Quote, But if you carefully obey His voice, the voice of the angel that God sets before them, and do all that I say, then Israel, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Part of the Mosaic Covenant is that God promises anybody who comes against you, my people, I will come against them. If you keep. My covenant. And finally, but not lastly, actually, foundationally, is this mind-boggling promise of the Mosaic Covenant that God promises to show Israel constant mercy, forgiveness of their iniquity, of their transgression, and of their sin. Exodus chapter 34 Verses 6 and 7. And I'm going to read them. We've read them once. I'm going to read them again. And as we hear in the midst of the law, in the midst of the Mosaic Covenant, what is right here are some of the sweetest gospel words in all the Bible. The fact that they are spoken from Mount Sinai and not the New Testament, and the fact that they preface the Ten Commandments and not the book of Romans, shows that the message of Jesus Christ and the message God gave through Moses are essentially and ultimately, harmoniously, one message of grace. Verse 6, The Lord passed before him, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so that fifth great promise is that God will be there filled with forgiveness of their sins and of their transgressions. Those five great promises. 
Israel is promised by God the Creator because of this covenant to be a special people to Him. Part of that special peopleness means I'm going to make you priest to come into my presence and not be killed. To make you a holy people. I will be the enemy of anyone who comes against you. I will fight on your behalf. And the foundation of it all is mercy, mercy, mercy. Forgiveness of their sins and their transgressions. But, here's the key of the Mosaic Covenant. All of that depends on certain conditions being fulfilled by Israel. Chapter 19, verse 5 again. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you're going to experience all these blessings. What are the conditions? The first thing off the bat that needs to be noted about the condition is that the condition under Moses and in the Mosaic Covenant with the Ten Commandments and the other commandments, the law of Moses, the condition to receive God's blessing and to remain in the covenant was not, is not, and never was sinless perfection. The Mosaic covenant does not teach, here it is, now you got the law, day one. If you ever sin, if you ever slip up on one of these laws and disobey me, then the promises of the covenant are over and through forever. It never taught that. Matter of fact, because we, the covenant itself, at its core, taught, here's the covenant. I will be forgiving your sins. I will be forgiving you when you transgress against my law. In other words, the foundation of the covenant is It's built on grace and mercy, meaning forgiveness of sins. So when we read chapter 19, verse 5, and he says, Israel must obey God's voice and keep His covenant, it does not mean that that obedience and keeping of the covenant is ever to be understood as earning the blessing of the covenant. You can never obey in the sense of work for it and merit the blessing of the covenant. Therefore, the commandment, love the Lord your God and don't commit adultery, mean, or say it this way, never mean, this is a law after the analogy of a job description to which if you fulfill it, at the end of the day, I will give you a paycheck, meaning your obedience will merit my blessing. That's not the law. 
When he says obey, it doesn't mean earn. It means to keep yourself in an attitude or something about your heart towards me and towards my law. Keep your disposition, your inward disposition in a place that will constantly be receiving my grace. The grace of the covenant. See, what does that mean though? What is that attitude? Chapter 20, turn there. Verses 5 and 6. In the midst of the Ten Commandments itself is one clear answer of what he means. Quote, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love Me and keep My commandments. Israel upholds the side, their side of the covenant. How? By loving the God of the covenant. Not letting any other God affections come into the heart and be put before Him. But loving Him first and foremost. And from that, out of that disposition of the heart towards God, love Him, Caleb would say, Joshua would say, Moses would say, out of that love flows the inevitability of obedience to the commandments that that God you love gave. Why? Because that's how every one of you human beings operate. We human beings always go after that which we desire the most at any given time. And if at the given time the one's affection and desire for true happiness is in God, loving God. Not loving God the way you love a helpless person and meet their need. Loving God the way you love air. The way you love water when your tongue is thick and really thirsty. In other words, you desire Him. You see something of the reality of who He is and that seems really good. And that love for God burrs obedience because water says, drink me. And so you drink it. And that's why when you obey the commandment from water to drink me, it could never mean, look at that, you earned the drink of water. For God to give commandments to Israel that are founded on have no other gods before Me. Love Me. I pour out My grace and blessing to those who love Me. Thus, the condition can never be understood as earning anything from Him. That would be like saying, 
for you to enjoy the benefit of the four or five star restaurant dinner, here's the condition. You must enjoy the food. You would never come home thinking, I enjoyed the food, thus I got the benefit of the dinner. I earned it. It's pure grace. God's commandments, by their definition, are not a job task to do to get something that is separate and utterly apart from the job task. Every commandment, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet, are all saying, delight in me. Because all these are signs and evidence that at that given moment, I'm not your delight. What you covet is. The adulterous relationship is. The stealing is. And when in the people who are imperfect like Caleb and like Joshua and like Moses, there are acts of obedience to the commands They're not earning the blessing. The obedience is the evidence that they love the blessing. That they love the food in the five-star restaurant. So it is unthinkable that the command that God gives to them to love God, it is unthinkable that that command could ever earn blessings from God. At that point, I realized I have so much more to say. I don't know if it's more, but it's such a big issue when we get to the New Testament and you hear terms like we are walking by faith and and, and, and by grace and not under the law. It's so massive that I realize that has to be a whole sermon, so I'm going to come back to that next week. Probably going to title it The Essence of the Law, which is always appealing to faith. But suffice it to say this morning that love for God is what gives birth to the true obedience to His commandments. And that is why when we go through the five books of Moses, I'm just going to, give, I'm going to give a few examples all over the place. When they rebel, when they rebel, they rebel again. God says, go this way, and they say, no. God says, here's my commandment, and they rebel. The books of Moses themselves constantly trace back that rebellion to a lack of faith. They trace it back to unbelief. For instance... Numbers, remember Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book of Moses. Numbers chapter 14, verse 11, quote, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people Israel here in the wilderness despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? Faith is the issue. Trusting Him is the issue. How long would they not believe in Me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? The fifth book of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 32, quote, Yet in spite of the Word, you, Israel, did not believe. Trust the Lord your God. 
Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe Him, did not trust Him and obey His voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. And now, listen to how the Holy Spirit interprets the five books of Moses in the New Testament through the writer to the Hebrews, starting with chapter 3, verse 16. Just listen. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled Talking about in the wilderness where we're at now. Who were those who heard the Word of God and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was He provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest? but to those who were disobedient to the commandments. So we see that they were unable to enter because of fill in the blank. Disobedience. But he doesn't use that word here. Unbelief. For the Holy Spirit through the writer to the Hebrews disobedience to God's commandments for Israel at Mount Sinai and through the wilderness, disobedience and a lack of faith are synonymous terms. I'm not through. Let me read verse 19 again and pick up and go to chapter 4, verse 2. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Verse 2, chapter 4. For good news came to us. Good news, that's gospel, isn't it? Christians, that's gospel. For good news came to us just as to them under Moses. The gospel was preached to them. But the message they heard, what we just read about the covenant, did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened to the Word. And so, in other words, the obedience demanded in the Mosaic Covenant is the same obedience demanded in the Abrahamic Covenant that we saw a few weeks back in Genesis 22, verse 18. And Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed. My voice. And the same obedience is what is required in the new covenant in Jesus' blood. The book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 9, to us Christians says, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. The covenant of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, 
and the new covenant sealed in Jesus' blood are ultimately all one great covenant of grace to be received by faith. Now, finally this question. At Mount Sinai, in the wilderness, how is it that so much grace, forgiveness of their sin and transgression, how could that exist there? The Mosaic Covenant itself leaves that unanswered. See, the question again is, how could this God who did show punishment, He did to the Egyptians what He did. He had 3,000 Israelites slain. He sent a plague and He did it all justly. How could that righteous God though in the Mosaic Covenant simply forgive their sin, transgressions, and iniquity? How can a just judge remove guilt from guilty sinners? Don't ever think it was because of the blood of the bulls and the goats. The Hebrew writer makes it clear the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. The hint, before we even get to Christ, Isaiah. Isaiah, as a prophet, by the Spirit of God, looks into the future and says in chapter 53, verse 6, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord, Yahweh, has laid on Him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So how could God, under Moses, in this covenant, forgive sins? Because He looked forward to the coming, the life, the cross, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And based on that is why He could cause Moses and Caleb and Joshua and many other Israelites, a remnant of them, to be born again to be truly under the mercy of the covenant, to have faith and wipe away their sin because Christ was as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What was freely offered and to some, a small group, received in the wilderness under Moses in the Mosaic covenant, those magnificent promises were purchased by Jesus Christ. So I told you when we started, I'm going to preach the Gospel. We're not on Sinai, but I want us to go back to Sinai. Here we sit 3,400 years later. Oh, no. Again, I know I'm going to say it over and over. This whole book, if you're a Christian, is your book. The Gospels don't start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They start from Genesis 1. The Gospel of Christ is all over. You remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He began with the books of Moses. 
and then through the prophets and started to say, see, 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 they were talking about me, 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 Jesus, the Christ, the Gospel. You remember how Paul speaks about what was hidden, the mysteries that were hidden in past ages and generations. Because it's hard when you're on the other side of the cross to see how could that be? Now that Christ has come, Paul has seen it. He knows why He died. How that worked. How propitiation worked. God raised Him from the dead. He's the one who was to come. Now, He opens up His Hebrew Scripture. And that's why, that's why, that's why those mysteries are unfolded, as Paul says in Ephesians. In Christ, we see more clearly. It's our book. So when you pick up Moses, you read Mount Sinai. Don't think, oh, that's Old Testament. That's old stuff. That's the Gospel to you. Forgiven sin from Adam all the way until the end of the age that has not come yet were all those forgiven sins were all laid upon the innocent sacrificial lamb. Jesus Christ. And He accepted them. And He accepted the just punishment for our sin upon Himself. And so today, if we find ourselves trusting in that Christ, having fled for refuge to Him, into the Godhead by the Spirit, then, as you open up Exodus and you hear the promises God makes to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant, they're yours. When you hear Him say, I will make you a treasured possession of Mine. I will make you Joe, a priest. I will let you come as a sinner into my holy presence and not be struck dead. I will make you part of a people group, a holy, separated, unto myself nation. I, God, will be an enemy to your enemy. All based upon, I will be putting away all your transgressions and sins and iniquities. I quote from the Apostle Peter. Here, the New Testament and the Apostle clearly. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, written to born again faith-filled believers, quote, but you, Gentile, or Jew, who has come to faith in Christ, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, then He made covenant with you. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The New Testament is doing this all over the place. When you see Moses, and if you live now as a Gentile, and you come to faith in Christ, the covenant made with Moses is yours. And God did it. He put you in it just like He put Moses and Caleb and Joshua and many, many others. That's only four that Peter mentioned there. Oh, we got to feel those first, no matter what you're going through. No matter what it's like to wake up on Monday morning or Thursday morning, sucking air for some type of hope. Yes, paying bills, raising families, dealing with marriages and friendships and hope, the future, the next year. They're real, but they're tiny. They are tiny compared to these great promises. In the midst of it, don't forget, I have made you mine separate unto Myself, holy people, a prized possession of Me, the Creator, and the Merciful One. A priest, all based upon, I have put away that which would have damned you to eternal torment forever. But then there's the fifth one. In the midst of the battle, because as Israel crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground, and three months later, God met them with covenant on Mount Sinai, there were 40 years of wilderness wandering. And our lives always have a part of that wilderness wandering until we reach Canaan which will be in the resurrection of the body. And we need that promise and the hope and the trust that God has covenanted with me to fight against mine enemies. Is it any wonder if you look at the next verse in 1 Peter 2, Listen to what Peter says. He made clear, he just rehearsed the Mosaic Covenant, and he says, they're yours, Gentile or Jew, in Christ. They're yours. In verse 11, the very next verse, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles on this earth to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. The enemies that we have come now to have clearly are not the Canaanites 
and the Jebusites and the Gergesherites and all the other ites in Canaan that God fought on behalf of Israel. The biggest, as Peter says there, there is a war. And it is sin. It is the flesh. I'm going to close by reading, say, Paul, the Apostle Paul, please come in here and close this service and tell us how we as Christians, now we're in the wilderness of Sinai called this life. Help us understand how God's going to fight for us. Because the greatest enemy that we Christians today have is sin. Unbelief. And God's wrath. Our greatest enemy is that our hearts would turn away like happened in the wilderness with most of Israel and rebel against trusting in His promises. The greatest enemy is to walk away from Him. But, have you come to Him? Is He in you? Do you know that Christ is precious? You're in covenant with Him. The new covenant in the blood of Christ. And part of that covenant is that God will be an enemy to those enemies. And He cannot lose. And thus, you will make it. I quote the Apostle Paul, This is what I think would be Paul's understanding. Let me say it in my own words, Paul would say. Here it is. This is God fighting for you. And hang on every word. Starting with Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, there's the Mosaic Covenant again, those who love God, all things work together for good. You mean... If we're sick of manna, yeah, you don't have to be bitter and rebel and grumble. All things that come into your life, if you're of the covenant, will work together for good. For those, that is, who are called according to His purpose. Why? Here's His foundation. Here's the spelling out of this mercy in the Mosaic Covenant. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers, And those whom He predestined, He also called to faith. And those whom He has called to faith, He has justified forever. And those whom He's justified, one day it is assured you will be in the resurrection of the righteous. He will glorify. What shall we in this wilderness wandering say to these things? This is what we should say. If the God of Moses is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also through Him, by Jesus, graciously give to us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn covenant person. Christ Jesus is the one who was condemned for you. He's the one who died. More than that, He has been raised and who is seated with all power and all authority at the right hand of God who indeed right now is interceding for us. Not Moses. Christ interceding for us. Who therefore shall separate us? In other words, shall the enemy of our faith called unbelief and turning away from Him, shall the enemy of our faith really win and separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation How about distress? How about something most of us cannot imagine right now that many brothers and sisters have experienced? How about persecution? Hmm. How about you don't have enough to eat? How about famine? How about no clothing? Cold and exposure? How about nakedness? How about danger? Real danger, physical danger? How about a sword? How about as the text says, for we, for your sake, God, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded by others as sheep to be slaughtered. How about that? Will that mean the end of you in the covenant? Paul answers, no! But in and through all these things, We, like Caleb and Joshua, no matter how big the giants look, are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Thus Paul concludes, I am sure that neither death itself, nor what is sometimes harder, life, nor angels, nor demons, nor rulers, nor things that are presently in my life, nor things that are to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing in all creation that you can possibly imagine will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because you are in covenant The covenant that was sealed and purchased by the blood of His Son whom He did not fail to send and die and rise. Oh, Father, Your book we call Bible. Your Scripture this 
glorious redemptive history is magnificent in our eyes. And so, Father, I pray that the words of this sermon, that the text of the Mosaic Covenant, the text in the New Covenant, give great birth to weary souls this week. That be the power of Your working by Your Spirit on Tuesday morning and Wednesday afternoon. That great hope be birthed for every one of us in here that we may see how true it is that You cause all things to work together for good. To those of us who have fled to You, that is, love You. May we taste and see that in the midst of the wilderness, our hearts will be singing and saying, God said, and thus I'm at rest. And to trust Your provision day by day. To the glory of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. How great